Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, October the 16th, 2023. Uh, as so often on this show, we are doing a little bit of a week on anxiety, on mental health. Later this week, uh, I have uh, Peter D. Kramer, the author of Listening to Prozac, that classic 1993 book, which in many ways turned America into what some people call Prozac Nation. Um, he has a new book out, or at least uh, uh, an anniversary edition of Listening to Prozac. This is a book, of course, in some ways about medicalizing anxiety, but there are other ways of thinking about anxiety and dealing with it. Uh, my guest today, in contrast with Kramer, um, I, I think has a, a different way of thinking about anxiety. David H. Rossmarine um, works at Mass General Brigham uh, Hospital, McLean, in Boston. Uh, he's a mental health professional. He's also the founder of the Center for Anxiety, uh, and he's the author of an intriguing new book, I think one that can be compared and contrasted with uh, Kramer's book on, um, on Prozac. It's called Thriving with Anxiety. Nine tools to make your anxiety work for you. And he's joining us from New York, where he is launching his book this week. Uh, David, of those tools, are any of them Prozac-related? Any of them medicalized? Any of them uh, things you put into your mouth? I think you're right that there's definitely a big contrast uh, between these two approaches. And uh, I'd be very interested to hear from listeners what uh, what they think about uh, about that contrast. Um, to me, I think we've been medicalizing and pathologizing normal, healthy emotions for a long time. And uh, I think we've taken it too far. I think the pendulum has swung way out. And as a result of it, when people have normal levels of anxiety today, they will freak out. And that just dumps more adrenaline into our system, which creates a cascade of symptoms. And the next thing you know, um, we have an anxiety epidemic. Uh, so yes, of course, pharmacology can be part of the discussion, but it doesn't make its way into any of the actual tools in my book. I'm not against pharmacology. I think medication has its place, but um, I don't think it's the solution in any way, shape or form to the mental health crisis that we have. So you acknowledge there's a crisis, David. Uh, you, you use that term, mental health crisis. Why and how are we going through this crisis? What exactly is happening? It's a great question. Um, the first question is, who is going through this crisis? And if you look, there are some very interesting trends. Firstly, young adults and teens are, have substantially more anxiety. They're more likely to be debilitated. They're more likely to be suicidal than individuals who are middle-aged or individuals who are older. And often, if you look um, at uh, middle-income countries, middle-income countries have half the level of anxiety that higher-income countries have. Lower-income countries have half, the level of have half the level of anxiety that middle-income countries have. So these are two international trends that we're seeing, you know, younger adults, especially in the West, I should say, have substantially more anxiety and for them, it is definitely a crisis. 
And this is also uniquely a problem in Western countries, in the United States in particular. It's 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 very intriguing, uh, and I guess it, it makes us culturally anxious. Um, but what is it about young people? I mean, a lot of people blame it on social media. Some people suggest it reflects changes in the workforce, helicopter parenting, lack of helicopter parenting. Yep. How, how would you make sense of it in, in terms of these young people? I think all of those factors that you mentioned are true. And I think they are symptoms of the larger problem, which is the main issue. We are obsessed with being in control, especially younger adults, especially teenagers. We're obsessed with always having equanimity. Our emotions should always do what we want them to do. Things should always be exactly as we plan, as we hope for. And in our culture, we have created a situation that we become unmoored, unmoored and dysregulated when things don't go the way we predict, when things don't go the way we want them to, when things are out of our control. Older adults know, older adults who went through the, the um, incredible struggles of the 20th century with two world wars, not too many people around from the first world war, but it was, in, you know, it was a memory for many people, certainly the second world war, certainly Korea, Vietnam, people who went through that, people in lower income countries, people in middle income countries understand that there are vicissitudes in life and things are not always going to be perfect and your emotions are not always going to be great. We have created this culture that we always have to feel good. And therefore, when we don't, our reaction to that is is a cascade. It's just a cascade. I have to admit, David, that I love what you, I usually am bored with what my most of my guests say because they've said stuff that I've heard a million times before. But you're actually saying something that is so important and yet rarely gets said. And I appreciate that. Uh, professional people in your business, in the mental health business, they often seem the complete reverse. They, they seem as if um, they're, they're transfixed with uh, anxiety about anxiety. Is part of the responsibility your professions for uh, fetishizing anxiety itself? Fetishizing. I like that word. Um, I would say that it came from a good place. The answer, I believe, is yes. I do believe that uh, the culture of we have to feel good all the time um, I don't know if it comes from the medical profession, but I think that we leaned into it. And I think we have in some ways exacerbated the problem, but with good intention. I don't think there was malevolent intent. There. No, I'm not suggesting malevolence. Right. Although maybe on the part of pharmaceutical companies, there might have been. Well, I, I guess people have got very rich off Prozac and all these sure. other drugs, haven't they? Sure, sure. And in some ways, in some ways, um, there is a corporate culture that has sold the false belief that we can feel good and we can feel happy and we won't feel anxious ever again. It's just not true. There's always a breakthrough. People, it doesn't matter how medicated they are, at some point they are going to have a breakthrough of anxiety, depression, sadness, because you're human. You're, if you don't have those fluctuations, something's wrong. It's, it's actually- On a daily basis, right? I mean, everyone has ups and downs. Daily, weekly, monthly, whatever it is, you're gonna have, I, I mean, I myself have had really intense emotions. It happens, it, you know, I'd be lying if I didn't say I ever, if I said I never got anxious and everybody would be. And, and, and speaking of 
drugs, maybe not so much Prozac, but all these other drugs that these kids are on, they're not opiates, of course, but they are in a sense addictive. It's very hard for them to get off it once they're prescribed, isn't it? Well, that, that's a whole complicated discussion. It depends on the type of medication. Let's maybe focus on anxiety. I think there are basically two main types of medications. The one, um, and again, I'm not against pharmacology. I think it, there's a place, more than 50% of my patients use pharmacology in some way. So I, I believe it has its place within the treatment of and helping people to manage, to deal with it, even to thrive, frankly, with anxiety. But I believe it's overused. And especially the one class, which I wanted to mention, which is benzodiazepines, Xanax, Valium, Clonopin, and the like are used as a, they're a fast acting medication. So people take them and immediately their anxiety comes down to some degree. And in certain cases that can be helpful, but if it's done with the intention of, I have to remove my anxiety right now and I cannot handle this and I, I, I'm not supposed to feel this way at all, that already to me does lead to, and they are addictive, they're addictive medications. Um, other forms of medication for anxiety, um, you mentioned Prozac, Zoloft, Lexapro is a very common one. Um, we, we call them SSRIs, they're serotonergic, they work on the serotonin system as opposed to GABA, which the benzodiazepines work on. Those have a longer acting effect. And to me, that's probably a better pharmacological approach from the training that I've had, um, depending on the individual case, of course. But broadly speaking, these are some general concepts about farm. We are speaking with David Rosemarin, the author of a really intriguing new book, Thriving with Anxiety, not Thriving Without, Thriving with Anxiety, Nine Tools to Make Your Anxiety Work for You. David, you mentioned earlier um, that young people were obsessed with being in control. Why? How, how has this changed? Who told them that they had to be in control of everything? It's a good question. I'm not sure where it came from. I'm not sure where that culture came from. It could be that technology played into it. I mean, now we all have these, you know, electronic appendages, as some of my colleagues have put it. These devices that yeah, I mean, uh, they respond right. Right. Researchers say that mental health, teen mental health, fell quite literally off a cliff in 2012. Is that your reading, your experience at there's, your in your research and at your Center for Anxiety? There's certainly, I haven't done research on it myself with teens, but there is certainly, to my knowledge, a, a good deal of research suggesting that um, uh, use of technology, especially certain forms of social media, has played into uh, the anxiety epidemic among teens, especially, especially females, interestingly. So, as I said in the introduction, you, uh, you work at... Uh... Mass Bringer, uh, General Brigham uh, McLean, um, and you're also the founder of Cent for the Center for Anxiety. Um, how do you address this as a doctor? Are you trying to encourage people to recognize that being anxious actually is quite normal? That's certainly part of it. This, what we call psychoeducation or just education about it. We often um, have a lot of work to do in therapy just to undo the damage that's been uh, that's been done, um, either it's through other providers or through uh, cultural factors that people learn in the workforce, people learn in school, education. Um, that anxiety is going to happen. You're going to have physical symptoms, and it's not dangerous in of itself. Anxiety does not 
cause people to die. I've never had a single patient die because of high anxiety. It does not happen. <laughs> what exactly, I mean, this word is one of these words that gets thrown around all the, all the time. What exactly does it even mean? I, I looked it up on Google, which seems to know everything. And it, and, and what I found is a very generic, sure. meaningless definition. Anxiety is a feeling of fear, dread, and uneasiness. Is that about as vague a definition as you can get. I think it's it's vague-ish. It's not only it's not very helpful. You know, the way I like to define anxiety, you really have to start with fear. Okay, so fear is a that's unanimously understood to be a healthy, functional emotion that we have in order to protect us. It's called the fight or flight system, and any healthy person, child, adolescent, adult, older older adult has fear because if you're threatened by something, your fight or flight system will kick into gear, you'll get a shot of adrenaline through your system, epinephrine going off and boom, all of a sudden, within nanoseconds, these physiological symptoms will manifest. Your heart will start to beat in order to get oxygenated blood pumping in your system. Your breathing will increase in order to power your muscles. You'll have, strong, you'll have greater strength. Your muscles will actually become tense because of that. Pupils dilate to increase the field of vision. People will sweat in order to cool down their systems so they can maintain that energy for a little bit longer. All of those physical symptoms that people complain about when it's anxiety, when it comes to fear, is actually a good thing. Anxiety is the same thing. It is the fear circuit going off. However, there's one big difference. Any guesses? You're the doctor. Okay, I'll tell you. The, the one difference is that anxiety is unnecessary. Anxiety occurs in the absence of a real threat. It's when you perceive the threat to be the case. Oh, I see. But it's not really, really there. There's nobody truly lurking in the cupboard, but your fear circuit goes off. So what's the difference between anxiety and paranoia? Or is paranoia just an extreme form so, of anxiety? So good question. Paranoia, um, in, in clinical terms, is uh, a, a form of anxiety. It's a form of anxiety. And specifically when somebody is like, what's going on? It's very cognitive. It's very in your head, as opposed to panic, which is another form of anxiety, which is more physical, right? All the physical symptoms of it. And paranoia is when somebody's thoughts are going like a little bit to almost into the world of unreality. So that's what we call paranoia. Um, it's a form of anxiety. It's basically the fear circuit, the cognitive aspects of, of that going off and preparing you to deal with a threat that is not real. So, so what, what happens when you're walking up a street mm -hmm. late at night? Yeah. Um, and you're anxious because there is a possibility that someone will mug you there's no evidence but it's possible is that anxiety well it depends how realistic that fear is so if that's the kind of thing that does happen on that typical street at that typical time of day for your you know whoever you are and yeah, but we don't think like that david so you know, people watch as you say people have spent all their time on social media or on television and they hear about the rising crime so they rationally or otherwise or irrationally connect that dark street with the possibility of crime. So, so often there is a gray area in terms of knowing whether or not we should be anxious, isn't there? It's a good point. I didn't say whether you should or shouldn't be anxious, though. So let, let's, let's, let me clarify my position on anxiety in general, and I think you'll see that the question actually goes away. Sometimes you are going to have a false alarm, and that's all right it's not bad to have anxiety. I never said anxiety is bad and fear is okay. 
We perceive anxiety as a problem. All it means is your fear circuit went off and it didn't need to. So what? <laughs> so what? I mean, yeah, it's uncomfortable. And yes, it's unpleasant. And yeah, if it happens all the time, then maybe we have to deal with it in a, in a more structured way. Okay. But that doesn't mean that something's broken with you. It's actually just an indication that the circuitry works, that your neurobiology is functioning, that everything is actually okay. It's just, it was a false alarm. So it's human. It's, it's, yeah, you're going to borrow the language of a certain philosopher. It's all too human to be anxious. And, and that's what you say. And you had right. an interesting piece in the Wall Street Journal recently. All human emotions serve a vital function, and anxiety is no exception. I, uh, thank you. Appreciate, I appreciate your comments. The, uh, uh, we have medicalized the exact opposite. We've made a whole industry out of normal emotions being pathological. That's what we've done. I bet you're popular with your fellow doctors. You're going to put them all out of work. No, I don't think so. In fact, if, if anything, there's more of a reason to have behavioral and mental health today than ever. I just think we need to have better tools like AI, like um, certain monitoring. Um, I think there's... Uh, such an importance of uh, psychotherapy and actually speaking to people about their symptoms. I think there are pharmacological techniques. We just have to be very judicious and very careful. So if anything, there's more research. I, 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 as far as I know, I'm not that unpopular. In my no, I'm teasing you, but it is a feature of, as you suggested, I don't know, post-modernity or post-industrialization. As you say, the richer a society becomes, the more anxious it seems to become. Correct, because we have expected to be we expect ourselves to be perfectly emotional perfectly emotional all the time and it's not going to happen it's just not going to happen it's an impossible it's an impossible expectation that you're always going to feel happy that you're never going to feel anxious isn't it also and coming back to what it means to be human isn't it a, a human expectation or is that unnatural david um, is what a human expectation? I'm not sure I understand. For everything to be perfect. No, I think it's a Western expectation. If you go to, you know, war-torn countries where people have been through tremendous challenges, it's understood that you're going to have, you're going to have trouble. It's understood that your emotions are going to get the better of you sometimes and that people are going to be, are going to be struggling. And often when people talk about that, it, it can create healing, it can create bonding, it can create spiritual growth, it can create all sorts of positive human adaptations. These negative emotions that we have are not, it's not the, it, it's not the end of our human, it's not the end of our humanity, it's not the end of our happiness. It can actually be the beginning of our happiness. We can parlay these into better connection. We are speaking with David Rosemarine, uh, who is the author of a, a very if it's controversial it's 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 obvious which makes it uh controversial i guess especially when it comes to mental health thriving with anxiety i want to thank our sponsor uh who brings us this excellent uh these excellent guests liberties a quarterly journal of culture and politics new quarterly addressing many of our most important cultural and political issues we're going to run a short ad uh, for liberties, then I want to come back with David and talk specifically about how indeed we can thrive with anxiety. He has some tools to make our anxiety work for us rather than the reverse. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas, it's a meteor of intelligent substance. 
It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We're having a a fascinating conversation with David uh, Rosemarine, who is the author of Thriving with Anxiety, Allowing Anxiety to Work for Us, I guess, David, rather than the other way around. Is that fair? Yeah, it's exactly what I'm trying to help people to do. So you've got nine tools. That's a bit too many for us to cover, but perhaps you might introduce two or three of them that you really think will allow our anxiety to work for us. Sure, I'd be very happy to. Um, Number one, when uh, people are anxious, that is, oh, I should say like this. People who are blessed to have some degree of anxiety are often also blessed with the ability to recognize, to understand, and to respond to emotional uh, factors on the part of other people. Um, And people who have been through the depths, people who have struggled with anxiety, whether it's panic or social anxiety, especially social anxiety, whether it's even generalized anxiety or OCD, if, if they're faced with other people with those struggles, there's like a natural, oh, I get it. I understand that because I've been there. And that is parlaying our own emotional struggle into our relationships with others. We live in one of the loneliest generations ever in the history of planet Earth. Even though we are surrounded by people, we're not alone. People are lonely because we don't connect. Anxiety can be used to connect to others. It can be used to understand and to respond and to be some of the, some of my best friends are super anxious <laughs> for this very reason. And many of my patients are wonderful friends to others because they, they understand, they just get it. Why does loneliness make us anxious? Um, or, well, is that, or is loneliness a consequence of anxiety? That's what I was saying before, is that I, I think often people are lonely because they have to put up a facade and because they, they don't feel understood. They're not actually not, you know, if you will, blessed to be around others who will use their anxiety. If we use anxiety to connect with others, our loneliness dissipates. Um, unfortunately, we don't. We try to shove it down. We try to quelch it. We try to you know, get rid of our anxiety in any way we can, as opposed to using it in order to connect. So are you, I mean, I guess the, the, the main theme of the book or the main message is that anxiety is normal, that it, it actually should make us feel more human. I, I, I would say it's more than normal. I think it does and it should, and it can I should better make us more human if we choose to go there. We have to ex- allow ourselves to experience that pain. If you, if we're so bent on never feeling uncomfortable it's very hard to like actually probe the feelings of another person my own experience of anxiety have made me much much better of a therapist no question no question what do you mean say, say, say some more about that. i have a bit of a sense when my patients are experiencing panic i've had a panic attack before so when my patients come in and they're experiencing that it, it allows me to understand, you know, what that breathing constriction feels like, the heart, the heart uh, pounding and feeling that, you know, painful pounding in your chest. It's, it's an empathy tool. We can use it as an empathy tool. <clears throat> yeah, that 
attack, a panic attack, is that peculiarly postmodern too? Did, have humans always had that experience? I think, I think panic attacks have been around forever. I mean, it's a false alarm of the fear system. So it probably happens even, maybe even less than, I don't, I don't know, I'm not sure. I'd have to think about that one. Um, but I, but uh, yeah, panic, panic is a, a normal response that people have from time to time. It's not, it's not pleasant, it's very uncomfortable, but it doesn't necessarily mean that something's wrong. You say that we need to have more emotional intimacy and, more, and be more accepting of life. There's a, that's a, a, a general kind of fix, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I love, you know, you talked about emotional intimacy. That was going to be the second tool. If you want to really increase your closeness with one or two people in this world, open up to them about what you're anxious about. Speak from the heart, dig really deep and say why you need them why they are critical in your life, what you're terrified of, and use that in order to cleave to them in the relationship. It is a wonderful tool, something that I learned from studying emotionally focused therapy, EFT, um, in addition to my cognitive behavior therapy training. And uh, interpersonally, I think we are not using anxiety in the way that it should in order to connect with others. It's one of the reasons that we are so lonely today. Are you turning then all relationships, particularly intimate relationships, into a form of therapy rather than going no, to a formal therapist? We open up to our therapy. closest friends. It's not therapy. I, but what it is, it's called... What is therapy then? Well, therapy is in some ways a proxy of what those relationships could be. And sometimes people don't have those intimate connections where they can really open up and cry on someone's shoulder. So they need to go to a therapist for it. And that's fine. That's great. It's wonderful to get that support. Um, if we can have that in our intimate relationships and in our families and in our friends, uh, I think that that's, uh, I think that's, that's a goal. I think that's a, a wonderful goal for people to have today. But are scary. these tools universal or they, do they apply specifically perhaps to young people versus old people, men versus women? It's a good question. I do think they're universal. I think we need them in the Western hemisphere more than people do in other cultures because they're not as anxious as we are. And I think younger people need them more than older people because I think older adults are in our society anyway, um, often more seasoned. They're like, yeah, I feel anxious sometimes or I'm uncomfortable and that's just the way life is. It's, you know, I sort of accept it. Um, I, I think it's more of a counterintuitive, more of the tools are gonna be novel and counterintuitive to younger generations. And maybe the men versus women, but I have to think about that. We did a show last week on psychedelics. It's becoming yeah. increasingly fashionable. I'm assuming that the, this new fashion for psychedelics is also part of this uh, world in which everyone is increasingly anxious and psychedelic drugs are an opportunity to escape it entirely. It's interesting. <clears throat> psychedelics in some ways enhance a person's experience. And that experience can be negative as well as positive. Mm. So it's not, it's, it's an interesting area of pharmacology. And that's one of those, you know, new developments that the, the jury is still very much out on. I'm not, you know, so against it. I think that there could, and maybe even should be a place for psychedelics in, in it today, but it's very early days. I mean, we're, we're talking about, you know, it's probably going to be a decade before we really fully understand this, the landscape of, uh, of psychedelics and how it, how it impacts people. Um, so you, I, yeah. 
your message is interesting in terms of the medical industry. I joked earlier, you, you know, probably not every not every doctor or every therapist is a friend of yours, but uh, your your observations in the the Wall Street Journal piece, for example, you talked about uh, the diagnoses of attention deficit oh, hyperactivity yeah. disorder ADHD skyrocketing when the American Academy of Pediatrics recommended that pediatricians routinely screen for its symptoms. Are you suggesting that doctors, pediatricians, therapists shouldn't be screening for anxiety? I don't have a problem with screening as long as there's appropriate follow-up. If you're going to start talking to somebody about their emotions, you need to be emotionally in tune and be ready to actually deal with what they say. We can't simply prescribe a pill the next minute and say that we've dealt with the problem. That's not responsible. So that's the problem I have. If screening would actually lead to a comprehensive strategy involving psychoeducation, helping people to improve their relationships, helping people to you know, uh, improve their socioeconomic situation, whatever is going on, you know, then, that's, then that's wonderful. And I, I wrote in my article at the end, you know, it's, it's a very different risk proposition. You know, the, the, the issue I took with in that, in that op-ed was that the, um, there was a recommendation that all uh, primary care physicians or GPs, you know, general practitioners in the United States screen for anxiety. It, it means everybody's going to be prescribed a benzodiazepine right away. I mean, that, that's, that's effectively what it means. PCPs don't have the time or the training to be able to deal with this. But screening in of itself, if it's going to have appropriate follow-up, sounds great. This anxiety generation that you write about they're growing up, they're going into the workforce. Mm -hmm. Is this why you have a lot of people complaining that the new generation of kids out of college are struggling with work because they're perfectionists in one form or other? I think perfectionism actually is there. We're often perfection. Younger adults, I believe, are perfectionistic about their emotions. I think that there's an expectation to perform perfectly all the time and their behaviors to perform perfectly all the time to feel perfect all the time, to appear perfect all the time. And that creates just such a high level of pressure, which is just buckling us. It's just buckling a whole, a whole society. It's very sad to see. In Japan, there's always been talk of, the, of a lost generation in a different kind of context. Is sure. it possible that we've lost this generation, this anxious generation, David, um, and that we should be concentrating on uh, younger people because these people can't change they're, they're they've been infected if you like with anxiety it's a sad thing to consider i i hope not and i don't think so you know my sense is that um younger people younger adults are searching and are emotionally more literate than well than i was <laughs> at their age so there are some advantages of having um, greater discussion about emotions. Yes, we ex younger adults expect the world of themselves and it's too much. But at least there's that emotional literacy. At least there's that discussion. The words are not foreign. So I think hopefully we can harness that, harness that skill, harness those well-intended um, scaffolded skills of language and basic concepts in psychology that people have in order to move forward. How that's gonna happen, I don't know. <laughs>
ultimately then could one make an argument that your new book thriving with anxiety the tools to make our anxiety work for us is a book that parents and teachers should be reading i would hope so you know i'd love to hear from parents and teachers uh who read the book and have feedback on it what they what people think about it um i, I do think that we have to start sending a more more of a message especially to school children especially the younger adults teens that emotions are going to be challenging sometimes and being resilient is the goal as opposed to feeling good all the time um, i think we need to highlight that i think we need to show how it works um, and uh if my book can contribute to that it would be you know i'd consider it a great privilege and blessing so as parents and perhaps teachers and even as employers we should be tougher really well yes and no tougher as in hey i know that this is hard but it's supposed to be hard that's what's going to make it worthwhile that's how we're going to get through this so it's not tougher in a hey get it the job done what's wrong with you you know obviously not there's a validation and a restated expectation that yes this is not going to be easy i'm in it with you let's do this together